You are now listening to the Gundog Notebook Podcast, hosted by Darrell Smith, with Paulus Ruger and Honeymoon in Vegas. Well, all right, y'all. This is another episode of the Gundog Notebook Podcast. Of course, this is your host, Darrell Smith, and... I want to go ahead and get this thing popped on off. We have an amazing guest on here, uh, Evan Oswald of Gypsum Creek Retrievers. And, you know, I met Evan at the uh, Ukanuba event that we were all just at, you know, social media and stuff like that. Um, You know, looking at some of their research and development. And Evan and I had a great time uh, just chatting with each other while we were at Churchill Downs talking dogs and running horses but before we get all into that because you know Evan is just an extremely articulate type of guy so I don't want to hold this podcast up too long but what I do want to say my usual announcements thank y'alls and all kinds of stuff like that uh, Dakota 283 kennels so one thing that I noticed about this G3 kennel that I'm just so so enamored with is the fact that one of my dogs is a copycat with my other dog, meaning Ruger's already crate trained, and so he goes in there just to kind of hang out throughout the day, and I might walk myself around a corner, next thing you know, I got a second dog in that G3 kennel, a little puppy named Vegas, that just like, they both like to get in there and curl up with each other, apparently. Or Vegas just likes to go in there and bug the life out of Ruger, but either way, the kennel is just clearly big enough for me to hold two, you know, pretty nice sized dogs. Ruger's about 55 to 58 pounds. Vegas is four months old, so he's, you know, small dude, but both of them sit fairly comfortably in that kennel. I say that to say, the G3 Medium is the one that I'm using, and for anybody that is not sure what size to get, honestly, if you have a, a, a you know, fairly decent sized Labrador, like I said, with anywhere between 55 and 60 pounds, a medium is a good size and another dog can definitely fit in there comfortably. They curled up like little balls and I was I was actually very surprised they wrestle all the time. But anywho, um, definitely take a look at Dakota 283 Kennels and all of the rest of their products. Um, you know, my dogs are crazy. They like to paw at the kennel also. Um, meaning my old kennel, they used to bust out. Well, you don't have that problem anymore. Um, and over here at the Smith household, my dogs, when they locked up, they locked up. You know, um, and I'll take an extra measure, go ahead and turn that little key, and now they really locked up. But um, also, I want to go ahead and talk about Lion Country Supply. So there is this new, not because it's not new, but this product that they have is the LCS Ground Hook. And I'm going to get that for myself because Vegas and I are in serious woe training mode right now. And um, it's something that you can kind of carry around as portable, it's kind of small, kind of light. Um, buddy of mine, Terry Martin, um, who I've been talking to recently, he's a he's a grouse hunter here in North Carolina. Um, he's got pointers and setters and stuff. He uses that same thing. Um, looks like a little question mark is, is how he described it. But I went on the website and it's a convenient little tool, you know, especially if you're working with a check cord and a pinch collar like I am. 
definitely something good to have. Um, and it also kind of follows him off of that Bud Moore, um, you know, teaching style that I like to implement as well. Um, so go ahead and check Lion Country Supply out, guys. If you're not getting the ground up, um, you know, find something else on there that, that, you know, would help benefit your training. It's summertime, man. You want to make the most out of all of the training that you are putting in so we can get out to the fall and the winter time and have a successful season. Also, my favorite folks, guys, my favorite folks, Northwoods Collective, Project Upland. So, as you all know, it's always something going on with Project Upland. It's always something up, up the folks' sleeves. And now that I'm a partner with them, change the logo and all kinds of stuff like that, and now you're feeling all famous and all kinds of stuff. No, they, they, they definitely look out for me. Um, and I really like talking dogs with these guys. But also, I like talking dogs with one particularly cool young lady by the name of Jennifer Wapinski, who has an article on Project Upland right now entitled, How Do We Navigate the Sporting Dog Market? Um, the Consumer Conundrum. Now, Jennifer and I were talking about this at the You Can Do event. We sat in a casino and, and chatted dogs for a bit. Um, all while we were not losing money because I'm scared of gambling and <laughs> she got some sense about it. But um, we were talking about just the details and how impressed we were with, you know, Yukonuba and all of their research and development initiatives. And so Jennifer's article kind of goes a little bit further into detail on, you know, the whole consumer aspect of dog food and what to feed your dog and what to look for and all kinds of stuff. I read the article uh, a couple of times actually and I've gone over it and we are actually going to look into um, the issue of, of, of doggy touring. I think that's how you pronounce it. But, you know, there's some kind of uh, controversy going on there. And so that that article just got me thinking a lot, guys. I'm not going to give away a whole lot. But um, check out Jennifer Wapinski's article. It was definitely very informative, very insightful, especially with all of these brands coming out. Nobody's saying, you know, go one way or go the other. But whatever food that you decide to look into, definitely, you know, know what you're looking for because, I mean, honestly, if I hadn't gone to that research and development event, um, I probably would have been just as clueless, you know, as I felt like I was, you know, before I got there. Like, I, I'm amazed at all of the information that goes into you know, dog food research. Though I'm not surprised, um, it's definitely something you want to look into. These guys are really pushing the bar. Um, and the dogs that we're working with, you know, these are these are athletes, man. You have to, you know, what you put in is what you're going to get out. So, anywho, I'm not the expert. Jennifer's the expert. Um, you know, I just know what I like with my dogs. And I know what their diet is doing and, and, and what it's making them look like. So, 
Also, as a part of Northwood Collective, I want you guys to go and check out the Endless Migration podcast hosted by Jake Terry, another gentleman who I had the pleasure of speaking with. Um, You know, when I listen to Jake's podcast, I almost want to go back and re-record my own because that guy is, he he sounds great on air. Um, You know, he really, really gets down to the nitty-gritty of especially for you diehard, you know, waterfowl guys, you know, duck dog guys, um, you know, the the folks that maybe if you go listen to this podcast, because it definitely talks about, you know, training Labradors, you know, once you listen to this, go listen to Endless Migration, seriously. It's definitely one of the more thorough podcasts that I've heard in, in regards to waterfowl. So, also, if you have not gotten a turkey, like I have not gotten a turkey this season, I done, you know, definitely uh, field dress some turkeys for some buddies, and I got some, but I didn't actually take any myself. So, if you, like me, have not gotten your fill of turkey season and turkey hunting, um, go check out Morning Thunder, okay? That's morningthunderhunt.com. Um, you will definitely, definitely, definitely be impressed with the content uh, on there as well. Um, And I say all of that to say that, you know, Project Upland, uh, Morning Thunder, Endless Migration, The Gundog Notebook, we are all trying to bring you guys fresh content under the name of the Northwoods Collective, okay? We're definitely trying to bring you guys fresh new content, and I'm hoping y'all enjoy it. Matter of fact, since we're on the topic, if you guys, once you listen to my podcast, listen to Jay Terry's podcast, listen to Nick Larson's podcast, um, go rate, review, rate and review them, guys. You know, let us know what you're thinking. Um, subscribe to them if you're not. That would just make your life easier. You'll see when these things pop up. You don't have to keep up with all the foolishness that I put on Instagram. So, my last thing, and I will get out y'all's hair, guys. Guys, 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 guys. Please go to my website, thegundognotebook.com, and get yourself the Gundog Notebook number two. Um, I, as, as, as something that I, you know, created personally, <laughs> I designed the whole thing, um, I actually think it's a really good training tool. Like, I will say I've impressed myself. I definitely have. Um, If you guys follow my social media and things like that, you guys have likely seen some shots, some photos of, of, of my notes, you know, from my notebook. And I like to pair... a a photo or video you know in that moment so you guys kind of have some context um right now i'm actually working on uh vegas on the barrel right i'm putting them on the barrel and then i'm working the mo lindley style the the pinch collar around the neck while he's on the barrel to to keep that head forward and, and things like that um field trial style because that's what i'm working on and then in addition to that i'll take that pinch collar off and i'll snap a check cord 
um, on that dog and kind of walk out in front of him and make sure his attention is on me. You know, flip that bad boy up and down, make 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 my checkboard flip like a Delmar Smith. Got that out of his book. But all of these details are in my gun dog notebook. Um, and that's the best part of what it's for. You start to figure out your own little, you know, tweaks and innovations. I actually kind of feel like I'm learning a whole lot. And, um, you know, maybe you'll have an unconventional approach. Maybe you'll have some kind of breakthrough. But either way, um, I, I would love if you guys definitely got yourselves a gun dog notebook number two. Uh, I've got a few more left here before I start um, with number three. There will be no more number twos because, um, you know, y'all heard so long ago, my buddy Tate Yandel passed away and he made them for me. So I'm not going to continue number two once these are done. Um, it's a very special notebook to me and just wouldn't feel right doing it again. So there will be a number three and it'll be a totally different, different notebook, different style. Um, so yeah. Not to get too deep on you guys, go check out thegundognotebook.com. Um, get yourself a notebook number two. I'll have it sent out to you ASAP. Write your training notes down. Um, you know, sit down and if you like me, have a natural light or a craft beer at the end of a good long night. Um, I'm sorry, a good long evening, right? Because it's hot, it's 90 some degrees here. I'm training in the evening. Um, but anyway, whenever you get done training, guys, write your notes down. It, 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 bud more words. You know, if it wasn't written down, it never happened. So outside of that, I hope I didn't, you know, blow your heads up. Um, my last little thing, I just, you know, want to say thank you, a special thank you to Will Sensing, AJ DeRosa, Chet Hervey, um, Hunter Morton. Y'all know why I'm thanking y'all, man. The general public will know very, very soon. But y'all know what I'm thanking y'all for. Once you hear this podcast, just shoot me a little text message and say, I know what you was talking about, you. So, that's a little code word for surprise. A surprise is on the way. All right, guys. Here's the episode. I will get out of y'all's ears, all right? This is the episode with Evan Oswald of Gypsum Creek Retrievers. I hope y'all enjoy it. All right, guys. This is another episode of the Gun Dog Notebook Podcast. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Um, we actually have an exciting episode. I met Evan Oswald of Gypsum Creek uh, Retrievers at the Yukonuba Sporting Dog event and you know, Evan, I feel like we 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 clicked like right away. I don't know what took us so long to shake hands, but it was pretty cool, man. So welcome to the podcast. Thanks, man. Thanks. I feel uh, feel privileged to to be on your podcast and and felt really privileged to be a part of the Yukonuba event. Uh, I agree. I don't know why we uh, just a lot of people, I guess, to meet there at the at the whole deal. But it seemed like as soon as we started talking, it was uh, uh, kindred spirits for sure. Absolutely, absolutely, man. And you know, it it seemed like we had a whole lot to say about some quality dog work. So you know, my brain was just going. <laughs> <laughs> Soon as we got, I hear you. So you, all right. So before we get into the nitty gritty, man, what did you think about the Yukonuba event? Like anything that you 
I guess, learned or stuck out or anything like that. And talk about uh, Kentucky Oaks, too. What you got on that? What was your analysis? Man, so, you know, for one, I'll have to say, and I think it was uh, Ben Higdon that made this comment, that it it is unbelievable the amount of money and time and effort that Yukonuba is putting into the research of their food. And for really no return other than that they know they're putting out a quality product. Mm -hmm. And as an end user, that's something that, you know, I think a lot of dog people probably, uh, that's something we probably assess over probably more than necessary. Right, right. But it's, it's good to know you know, that they're, they're putting that much thought, that much effort, that much time into, into creating a good product for, for the dog and also for the owner and handler and things like that. Um, I was very impressed with their facilities, mm-hmm. but man, mm-hmm. as far as, as far as the Oaks, the, what an awesome time that, you know, I grew up not really ever going to anything like that. So getting to experience something, watch the horses race and, and see the, you know, see Churchill Downs, kind of a historic place in mm-hmm. a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. It, it really a, a, a good experience. And, and also just the, the ability to, you know, meet and talk to everybody that was at the event for Yukonuba, but, you know, that we hadn't had a really a chance to sit down and talk. Mm-hmm. It, it gave gave us a good you know good time to visit you know shoot that's i think that's what you and i really got to mm-hmm. <laughs> communicate more more than any uh time other in the weekend right um, right know. so so how idiotic <laughs> or crazy did i sound <laughs> when we first met because i was like lord i'm up here hanging out with all of these dog folks that know way better so please <laughs> I was like, Lord, I hope I don't sound like an idiot. <laughs> not, not at all, man. Not at least nothing that I noticed. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I I appreciate it, man. And I like to have a good time, man. Like, I'll sit down and, and chop it up. And, of course, I, I wanted to sound like the horse expert. But, of course, <laughs> I lost money that day, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you're not alone in that field. You and me both so there's no worries there. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, and, and like I said, we'll get to the nitty gritty, man. But something about horses and dogs, man, for anybody, whether it's a retriever guy, pointer guy, what what is it that that the horse guys, you know, what is it about their connection to those horses that stood out, man? Because I don't I'm not one to believe in like coincidence but I do think that there is some something to learn, you know, from these horse trainers and, and, and the guys and the jockeys that are racing about the relationship between the dog. I mean, between the, the jockey and the horse and, and the trainer and the horse. I think there's something that we as trainers can take away from that. What you think about that? Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. There's definitely, you know, there's there's obviously no substitute for talent mm-hmm. ever. But it's it's hard to if you can find someone that can develop a bond and develop that trust between whether it's the horse and the the jockey or the horse and the the trainer or, or the dog and the handler or the dog and the trainer if there's that undeniable 
bond and also trust that the jockey or the handler trusts the dog or the horse and the horse trusts the jockey or the handler dog trusts the handler it it creates something that maybe talent can't always completely encompass Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that probably wasn't the most eloquent way to say that no i think you were just fine (laughs) (laughs) i i mean i and i think all of the listeners can agree with what you said man like we like we have these high drive dogs man we've got these really nice pedigrees dogs are always fired up ready to go but you know there's no amount of training to me that will you you know that's worth it if you if you don't have that connection with the dog you see what i'm saying like it, it's just no point in doing it all um and that's why i just kind of segueing into it um I used British methods, much like you do, um, to train my my lab, and he's an American lab, mind you. Um, but I think a lot of those methods have so much to do with that unspoken bond. You know, you're not going to get through a training scenario without without finding a way to really connect with that dog, and you're not going to connect with him through any kind of training tool or anything. That's a one on one thing. You know, that ain't no different than me and you standing at Churchill Downs and, and being like, yo, okay, I kind of like talking to you. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That's, that's definitely one of the things that, that kind of drew me to it was it's, you know, and, and this could probably be said about every training method if you really got down to the, um, you know, down to the brass tacks. Mm-hmm. But I, I, it's definitely there's a lot of trust building with the dog and it's a lot of teach, teach little bitty bites at a time mm-hmm. to eventually eat the whole pie. That was nice. And <laughs> that, that was something that definitely kind of drew me to it. Um, you know, I, it was just something that was kind of different and, mm-hmm. and um, <laughs> I don't want to get ahead of, ahead of you or anything. No, you're fun. Go ahead. Unleash. Go so, for it. That was definitely something that, you know, I, I, I kind of looked at it as, um, I, I don't know, I've always kind of been kind of in the, the field of, uh, I like to do things different and kind of go against the flow of the majority. Um, so that was kind of why I, I leaned towards the, the UK methods or the Amish methods, as a lot of American trainers will call it. Really? Um, it's just because it, you know, it was... It was different, and it, it you know, it, you're definitely not going to train a dog as fast. Mm-hmm. That's for sure. As as a dog that you're going to put through a force method, it's it's probably going to take you know significantly longer, somewhere in the realm of six to twelve months, probably longer to get to a finished product. Right. Um, but it's it's different, and you know, it's it's a lot of trust building, a lot of teaching the dog, hey, you know. When I say this, you can you can believe that this is there, or you know you can take me at, at my word. Mm-hmm. I, I like that, man, and I'm actually glad that you mentioned you know the rate in which the dog gets through training and this then and you know and the time it takes to learn um, on that. And you know I don't think that's an unrealistic expectation, you know, for any dog. You know, I I've always been a believer of giving a dog its first year, you know what I'm saying? Just, you can have that first year to yourself, figure yourself out and being a dog. 
and over t- you know as that year progresses letting that dog you know of course you're putting in training but you're not really laying into them and really drilling home the foundations you know really until after the fact you know that first year take it slow you know let them figure things out what you know so what it like when you get a client dog come in is that something that you have to tell them as far as expectation Sure. So I, I try to let everybody know. For, well, for starters, I don't take a dog that's under six months old. Okay. Because they're just—it's just—they're too young, especially for. Uh, I mean, for ninety percent of the work, unless we're just doing basic obedience, it, they're just too young. Um, but I, I definitely let everybody know. You know, it's going to be the first couple months. You, you're going to feel like I'm sending you videos of the same thing over and over, week after week. Mm-hmm. But all we're doing is just laying a foundation. We're teaching the dog more than anything. We're teaching the dog how to learn. Right. We're not necessarily teaching the dog specific concepts or even really, you know, with especially with things like sit and place and heal at, at the very beginning of it. We're just teaching the dog how to learn more than anything. Right. And so, you know, the video updates, I tell them, expect it to be kind of boring, expect it to be kind of underwhelming. And that, you know, it's not going to seem like we're really accomplishing a whole, whole lot at first because we're really not. We're just kind of shaping the dog's behavior mm-hmm. and teaching the dog, hey, if you do this, it's a good thing. So if you walk next to me, hey, I get a, you know, I get a bite of a treat. Or if I sit on this weird board, I get a treat. And, the, you know, it, it's, a, it's, definitely, um, it's definitely something that my clients kind of come into – knowing that maybe, you know, that if they'd have gone with somebody else, the dog probably would have been a little bit further ahead at the point that they're at. But there, you know, there's different ways to achieve those results that I don't typically lean towards. Right, right. Understood, understood. Well, I, you know, and I think it's important for folks to know that, man. Um, training, especially pup, like I'm, I'm working on a, a four month old pointer. You know, I've, I've told you this hell at this point, everybody knows, but you know, I check out my like social media feed. Right. And I've got this thing, you know, a personal goal of mine to post every day barrel training. That's a big thing for me. Training a pointer is working that dog on a barrel and teaching them, whoa, and styling them and stuff like that. Right. Absolutely. But like you said, it seems like it's the same thing happening over and over and over. But you as the trainer and and myself, you know, I I know what the differences are. Those little subtle things, right? You know, you know when the dog is clicking. So for you, you know, when you're talking about, you know, sending a client a video every day or, or, or whatever the rate that you do it, what what are the indicators for you to say, all right, I know that this dog is learning, like not just executing the, the activity, but like what are the subtle things that you kind of pick up on? Sure. So I've always kind of said that the the big jumps come one little idiosyncrasy at a time. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I look for little things like, Let's just say well, uh, I'll just stick to basic obedience for now, just to kind of keep it clear as mud for every you know for other other people. Right. But little things that I look for, like 
the, the very first thing that I teach every dog when they come here is to place and sit. Most dogs, when they get here, know to sit already, but they don't know place. Right. So place is one of the easiest things to teach how to learn because they figure out, okay, if I put my feet on this board, I get a treat. Right. Um, I, I do a lot of clicker training uh, to, you know, to kind of starting out with obedience. Mm-hmm. So one of the first things that I really look for is after a couple of days of working on the place board, when I let the dog out of the kennel and we go out into the area that I, I train basic obedience, I, I want to see a dog that's running over to that board and at least putting their front feet on it and looking at me like, Hey, is this what I'm supposed to be doing? Right. Um, or if we're doing heel work, if they start to constantly look up at me, I like a dog that's very attentive and looking at me. What's, what's the next step while we're doing heel work. Mm-hmm. Um, if there's, you know, if they're constantly looking up at me and trying to make eye contact and going, Hey, what's next boss? Uh, that's definitely something that I, you know, they're okay. They're understanding what we're doing here. Mm-hmm. They, they want to, you know, be in communication with me about you know what we're trying to accomplish right. um, or, or little things like when we're doing heel work and I stop walking and they immediately sit without having to say anything then okay they're getting the they're understanding what we're doing here which you know they're understanding that the overall concept of what we're trying to teach here right 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 okay now I've got this weird thing have you ever seen a dog like consistently like lick their lips at you for me that's a learn a little quick a little quirk that i like to see in a dog i've got i see it more in in fact i see it in almost all uh uk bred dogs that i've come across really that they have that idiosyncrasy that if they're excited and they're they kind of know what's about to come next they'll kind of lick their lips and chomp their mouth um I have a little uh, a little female out of Southern Oak Kennels that she uh, if she's as soon as she's watching a mark fly or as I'm lining her up for a blind she will lick her lips and chomp I mean just about every single time really um, and I have a little eight month old male he's, he's just about eight months old a little eight month old male that's out of uh, a British uh, or I should say a UK kennel out of Texas. Livingston gun dogs that he does <clears throat> as soon as he jumps on the place board or as soon as I put him on the the whole table he starts you know he'll start chomping his lips or if I make him sit and do an extended sit if he leans forward like he wants to move and I tell him no sir sit and he kind of leans back he'll lip it lick his lips and chomp um I, I noticed that a lot in a lot of my my UK dogs wow um, and some of my American dogs okay I think it's just kind of a I don't know. Idiosyncrasy is what I call it. Right. I think it's their way of expressing a little bit of excitement without actually moving from what they're supposed to be doing. Right, right, right. Okay. So I look for the same thing um, in both of my dogs. My lab doesn't do it as much. Um, They will every blue moon, but my pointer, that's his thing. Like, you see what I'm saying? Like, I know that that dog is beaming in on me and just zeroing in on me. Um, you know, waiting on the next thing, and especially on the barrel. I mean, that boy, you think he had cotton mouth, man. (laughs) (laughs) So let's, let's, you know, let's, let's take it all the way back, man. And I'm going to throw a listener question, um, at you as well. I want to talk about, 
you know, your background and, and where you're from and how you first got into your dogs, especially labs and a listener, um, W Thompson 90, um, you know, from Instagram, he asked who your training mentors were. Okay. So I'm kind of, uh, I'll answer that question and then kind of go, we'll kind of rewind back. From mm-hmm. So I'm kind of unconventional, um, as opposed to a lot of people, I haven't really had a whole lot of, uh, I didn't have any really formal apprenticeships okay. to say with dog training. Okay. I had a lot of, uh, I, I worked, I worked at a veterinarian, uh, in the summertime in high school. And so I have a lot of experience in animal husbandry just nice. as far as general care of dogs and things of that nature. Um, but I, I didn't really do any formal apprenticeships. I would say as far as, you know, mentors throughout the whole process, uh, when I started early on with my first lab, which is going on about six years ago now, okay, I, I talked I talked a lot to a gentleman named Jeff Paleo. Mm-hmm. He runs a kennel in North Dakota, AWA gun dogs. He turns out a lot of really nice gun dogs. Um, I talked to him a lot just about general dog behavior, uh, and stuff like that. He and I differ, uh, on the fact that he's, he's pretty well exclusively force, uh, force-based methods. Mm-hmm. Um, he leans kind of towards, uh, Mike Lardy's stuff, uh, Danny Farmer's stuff. Yep. Um, but you know, just it, obviously dog behavior is still dog behavior, no matter how you're training them. Absolutely. Um, so I, I, I spend a lot of time talking to uh, – a, a fair amount of time, I should say, talking to Barton Ramsey of Southern Oak Kennels. Yeah, you know uh, Barton. He's definitely, he's definitely taught – you know, obviously he and I uh, are kind of on the same page as far as training methods. Mm-hmm. So he, he's definitely been a big help with some, you know, some problems that I've ran into. Uh, um There's a guy by the name of Scott Bodemer. He's out of uh, – out of – the eastern Kansas, western Missouri region. He runs a kennel called Bradley Retrievers, um, and he's also pretty much exclusively forced, but he's he's very much uh, very intuitive on reading a dog. He's very very good at reading dogs, and so nice. he's been he's been a big help as well. Um, just kind of helping me, you know, get a get a good understanding of what I'm looking at when I do run into problems and why the dog's actually doing what they're doing and, and things of that nature. Okay. But other than that, I, I kind of have been a, uh, a self-starter, if you will. I, hey, look, you, you my type of guy because we in the same boat. <laughs> I, I started out, uh, as far as dog training goes, I, I, I started out probably where a lot of retriever trainers start, and that's with uh, the, the Walters book, Water Dog. Okay. Um, which, you know, now looking back is kind of uh, – uh, retriever 101 i wouldn't really say it's um you know a full encompassing training manual so to say but it's definitely a good place to start right um so as far as like way back where i came from and, and beginning things of that nature i was born and raised in dallas texas i lived there until i was 18 um I grew up with a golden retriever as okay. a hunting dog, and she had kind of just 
bad luck of the draw. She had really bad knees and had to have both her knees replaced at, at about three years. Uh, I think she was two and a half or three. She was really young. Wow. So we, it was just a really unfortunate thing. It was, it was a bad, bad uh, cross with, with the sire and, and dam that she came out of. Just kind of one of those deals where, you know, it's it just bad luck. Uh, just an absolutely lovely dog overall. Right. She always went out and picked up my ducks and was eager to go when we would go. But you know, after after the knee surgeries and stuff like that, she couldn't really go all that often because you know a, a couple hours of hunting took her four or five days to recover from. Right. So uh, in 2009, I moved to Central Kansas to go to college. Um, a couple years after that, I bought my first Labrador. Uh, one of my buddies had a dog that I had hunted with quite a bit and he studied that dog out. And so I got a dog out of that litter mm -hmm. and kind of decided that I wanted to train that dog myself. Um, so that was kind of the point that I began talking to Jeff Paleo in North Dakota. Um, and then also kind of just doing research on my own of kind of, you know, learning how to train a dog without right. a collar and without the force fetch method. Um, so I kind of got in, you know, definitely took a lot of stuff from the wild rose stuff. Yep. They're, they're, they're definitely kind of the, uh, the pioneers yep. as far as publishing anything in that realm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm again, a man after my own heart. That's where I started. So I felt, I felt, you know, I, I went and visited Jeff in North Dakota. Um, we were actually buying some decoys from him at the time and took my dog, who, my first dog, his name is Jax. And he was about, I think he was 14 months old, maybe 16 months old. Um, and when we got up there, you know, Jeff started asking me, well, you know, how did you train him and stuff like that? And it, he was, he was, uh, I don't want to say he liked the way Jax ran and performed right. for a dog that had not been put on a force fetch table right. or, or, you know, put through a force program, forced to pile it, you know, and things like that. Right. And so that was kind of the first, uh, I don't know, if you want to call it a light bulb moment mm -hmm. for me that it, if you had a dog that was well-bred and also biddable mm -hmm. that they didn't necessarily have to be force fetched. Um, and, and that's no knock on that type of program. Right. I, I still, I still institute that into, you know, 25 to 30% of the dogs that are in my kennel because there's certainly dogs that, that they just fit that program better. Right. And for an end product, I think we're going to create a better product if we put a dog through a force program, but I definitely prefer to train, uh, the the non-force way, um, it's probably, you know, I, I would say probably 75% my dogs are, say, the, my dogs we kill are probably 75% not forced, mm -hmm. and probably 25% are. Okay. Uh, but, I, you know, that, that was probably, that was probably kind of the, the beginning of, of the wheels turning of, okay, well, maybe, maybe I do have something here. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Now let me let me ask you this, Evan. You've got seventy-five percent of your dogs not, you know, not on the force program. 
and you've got the other 20, 25% on it, you know, possibly. Do you think there's that middle ground dog that may very well have, say, for instance, not needed force early on and, and took well to, you know, the, the non-force methods early and then maybe later on down the road might need the force as a rein, as a reinforcement type deal. Is, do you, have you ever seen that middle ground dog? Absolutely. I've, I've got, uh, I've got one dog right now by the name of Lou that she's a really nice black lab, uh, young female. She's about nine months old now. And she landed, you know, I, I see dogs definitely that are like, okay, this dog, maybe they're super, super soft and they don't bode well to firm correction or pressure of any form. So definitely that dog, we're not going to force fetch. We're going to keep them off the table as as long as they have a good desire to retrieve. Um, because you know, if we don't have a desire to retrieve, uh, you know, you'll see some people that say, oh, well, you should put that dog in the force fetch table and teach the dog that, you know, force means fetch. And, and I don't think that's the case at all. I right. think dogs that are very, very driven and very, very, that this is all I want to do. And I'm going to do it no matter what you say. I'm going to go pick that up. Those are the kind of dogs that actually should be force fetched. Really? Um, because they're going to understand, because then that pressure and shutting off the pressure is the concept that, you know, really kind of, <laughs> it really conveys that, you know, what's going on to them. Right. Um, you know, I apologize. That probably wasn't the most eloquent, again, but <laughs> no, uh, you're I, fine, I, man. <laughs> not, not to get down a rabbit trail here. Uh, I, I definitely see some dogs that are going to land, you know, right in the middle of, okay, either we could put this dog on the four special table or, we can kind of just, you know, lean more towards a, a, a UK type style method or an mm-hmm. old school type style method that, you know, we could we could call it. Um, it. And typically, what I do in that kind of instance is I'm going to leave it up to the owner. Okay. I'm gonna, you know, I'll, I'll explain to them both, you know, kind of what both entail, and then, you know, it, kind of let them pick and and also kind of you know, through questions and stuff like that, what they're really needing out of the dog. Right. And then I can kind of, you know, steer them in the right direction. Okay. Most of, at least my clients, most of my clients are guys that are going to hunt, you know, a couple times, uh, you know, maybe a couple times a month and they need a dog that in the house is very well behaved and in the field is well behaved, but can also perform the overall task at hand. Right. So for the most part, that kind of dog is going to benefit probably more from a old school type method than it is a force method because they don't need the dog to run a 250, 300 yard blind or, you know, a 350, 400 yard mark. Right. They just need the dog to not jump on mama when the dog comes inside from the kennel right and you know and then also to not break when their buddy shoots that blue wing teal that came screaming through the decoys that Mm -hmm. nobody saw right 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 so definitely yeah i've got i've got several that are kind of right at that middle ground uh and i i typically leave it up to the owner um you know if i see one that's going to be really well fit 
towards a force program or really well fit towards a non-force program. Um, I try to kind of explain explain that to the to the owner of hey look this is kind of where we're at this is kind of the personality of the dog and this is what i think is going to best suit that dog right um i I always try to lean towards the non-force methods if i can just because i like to train that way Mm -hmm. um i'm just kind of biased towards towards that method that's how i started Mm -hmm. you know I've, i've had good success in the field with that that kind of training method, but at, at the end of the day, it's you know I, I always try to let the dog tell me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I you know what that what that does is is kind of bring up something that I was thinking about. Um, I do a I, I just partner with Project Upland, but you know I'm always reading their articles are always just really really informative, and I think every. Uh, Dog owner, dog handler, dog trainer, you know, should be a be very active in the knowledge base, but not just in a book. Um, I think as far as the dog really understanding and observing, you know, the dog's little habits and its quirks and like you said, the idiosyncrasies. So I say all that to say Project Upland, there's an article on their website um, written by Jason Carter. It's called Training to the Character of Your Gun Dog. And I really think those old school, those those British methods really speak to that. You see what I'm saying? Like really learning the character of your dog. And, and I think you articulate that very well. You know what I'm talking about? A- absolutely. Absolutely. That's something that I, I've always tried to, uh, when somebody drops off a dog, I, I always tell them, I'm going to give them about 15 days to settle in. Mm-hmm. We're going to do a lot of basic obedience during that time. We may do some very simple retrieving during that time. But really what I'm looking for in those first two to three weeks is I want the dog to tell me what kind of dog they are. Mm-hmm. I, I had a dog that showed up. She's a little yellow lab and really a very nice dog. She's very driven to retrieve, but also very eager to please. And, her owner was was pretty dead set on having her put through a force based program. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, starting out, that's kind of we were kind of gearing up towards that, and I, I was kind of you know doing all the things that would that that we would do to to head into a force based program. And the the further the the closer and closer we got to putting her on a force fetch table, the the more and more she was telling me, "You're not." She just wasn't fit for it. Right. She's a very driven dog. She loves to retrieve and has no issue with, with you know, running as many retrieves as you'll throw for her. But she's extremely soft right. and has pretty well no, pretty well no bottom. And so, you know, we kind of revisited after she'd been here for about a month. And I said, look, you know, we can certainly proceed with this. But I think what's really going to best suit her is to just put her through a hold conditioning program and teaching her that hold means hold until told to do otherwise. Right. And then go ahead and and go ahead and move into her formal retriever training sans force. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, she, and she's done extremely well. She's excelled with without force. And, and you know, that that definitely could we have put her through a force program and probably made a good gun dog out of her anyways? Sure. But with the type of dog that she is, it probably would have made, it probably would have took away a lot of her style. Right. Because it would have 
really kind of put a hamper on her spirit. Right. Um, you know, she's very eager to retrieve, very eager to please, but you know, she's the type of dog you say her name firmly and she just melts to the ground. Mm -hmm. And so that, that's the type of dog that when I put him on, you know, if you were to put him on a table, you, you do an ear pitch once or twice and they're just like, I don't want any part of this. This isn't fun anymore. And you hate me. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, and, and so that's one of the reasons I kind of lean towards for, at least for building gun dogs. That's yeah. one of the reasons that I lean towards a, a non force method anyways, just because I, I think a lot of people get a collar in their hands and they think, okay, well, if the dog messes up at 100 yards, all I have to do is just melt this dog to the ground. Mm -hmm. The dog's going to understand what I want. Mm -hmm. And so if I can train the dog without a collar and show them, hey, a verbal correction is more than enough for this dog, I, I think the dog's going to be a lot better off right. in the long run. Right, right. You know, you also, you, you brought up a very good point, you know, and, and I'm, I've had to learn over time, man, to not be anti-collar, but I'm not uh, collar reliant, if that makes sense. Um, Absolutely. You see what I'm saying? I'm, 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 I'm kind of, I'm either way, depending on the dog, like you said. But when we're talking about uh, training to the character of the dog, do, do you think people are, are we humanizing the dog too much? Or, what? you know, what's going on there? Because... I think as a trainer, there has to be a fine line between, you know, understanding the emotion of the dog and, and not thinking that the dog is going to, you know, react like maybe we would in, in the same circumstances. But also in understanding the dog's emotion, also getting the dog, you know, making it very clear, making it very known. I need you to do this job regardless. So, you know, what is it about humanizing a dog that, like, where do we go too far with it? Sorry, that was a random question, but I just, I kind of go down rabbit holes, man. <laughs> man, that's a, that's a, that's a good uh, question. I, that's something that I talked to, uh, it's something that me and my, my helper, uh, who's also my, my video and photography guy, who's just an absolute, um, he's an absolute savant at, yeah. at video photography. He's a 19 year old kid that helps me with all my stuff. His name's Braden Wynn. Nice. Um, that's something that I talked to him about a lot is I think sometimes, especially as owners, we anthropomorphize our dogs entirely too much. Mm -hmm. And we, we try to let, we, we try to let human emotions dictate dog's behavior and what we feel the dog is trying to tell us right with our emotions instead of a literal assessment of what the dog is actually trying to tell us right um i, I see it a fair amount I, I have customers that say oh in no way shape or form do i want to call her on my dog because that's just cruel and unusual punishment type right. of you know mentality and, and the reality is of it for the right dog, it's in no way punishment at all. Right. It's just a me. It's just a means of teaching a concept. Right. I agree. I, I definitely. I, I have a dog right now that. Um, speaking of it, it taking longer than than normal, I have a dog right now that showed up a while back, 
that the the owner was very insistent on they did not want the want a collar on the dog they did not want the dog force fetch or anything like that um the dog definitely fit a force program better <laughs> as far as his personality he's a very driven dog and he's also a very independent dog he thinks that his way is the best way no matter what right um uh, I kind of communicated to the owner that, hey, look, this would, uh, this, he's a very nice dog. He's very smart. He's, he, I mean, he front foots every mark that I put in front of him. Very nice dog overall. But he just fits a force program better. Right. But the owner was very, very serious about not having, you know, any type of call or anything like that put on the dog. So, the dog has probably spent an extra three to five months with me right. because of that. Because we, we have not put him through a force program. Right. Um, you know, and that's uh, in that situation, that was more because he just didn't want to have to have a collar with him mm-hmm. um, and less because of anthropomorphization. But uh, I see a lot of uh, it typically comes from from wives more than it does from from husbands uh-huh. of, of the owner of the dog. But they definitely they think that a you know a collar is is like we're just electrocuting the dog until until right. they fly. <laughs> no, um, this, this is not the old you know tritronics collars. <laughs> right. <laughs> that, that, that there was one setting and it was burn the dog until they melt. Right. Um, but you know that's that's kind of what they they've been you know told. There's there's a lot of Facebook groups out there that are very anti-force of any mm-hmm. form, even a, you know, a, a chain slip lead or mm-hmm. something like that. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, it's, and it's easy to, to, to kind of fall into that category. I, I definitely, you know, I've got a little female that, that she lived in the house for quite a while. Now she just lives out in the kennel. Um, cause we're getting ready for hunt test, but she's a very intuitive dog. She's she works a lot off of, you know, uh, she's got constant eye contact. She always wants to be looking at you and determining what she's supposed to do. Right. And so it's very easy with, especially with a dog like that, where, you, you know, you start to put human emotions into a dog's body. Mm-hmm. And it, in my, you know, in my opinion, that is one of the most dangerous things we can do as a trainer is right. to put human emotions into dog behavior. Absolutely. Because, they're not humans. They are at the end of the day, they are a dog. Right. And you know, that was, that was one of the reasons that I went ahead and moved her out to the kennel because I mean, don't get me wrong. She's probably not that I play favorites, but she's probably my favorite dog that I've ever had. Right. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know, I would let her get away with little things because she, you know, she makes eye contact and she's cute and she, she, you know, she do, she had these little idiosyncrasies in the house that I, you know, that are funny, yeah. but in the field they trans, you know, they, they translate it to issues in the field. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's definitely something that it's very easy to do, especially with particular dogs. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's just something that we should, as responsible owners and trainers that we should be aware of personally of okay I, I need to take a step back and look at is that dog actually doing that because uh, how are we perceiving I, I need to reword that how are we perceiving their behavior right 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 and and that and that definitely goes you know further into 
you know, training the, 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 the handler too. You know, just being able to realize that. Now, let me ask you this, because you do train a multiple, a, a number of different dogs and, and different ages, you know, uh, hunting styles and things like that. And, and it's one of my questions and I always kind of think about, but then it was also a listener, uh, Birds and Dogs 17 and, and, and uh, my buddy Zach Hoheisel, like he... Uh, both of the Homer and Zach are the two guys that asked the question, but they want to know what are the the differences, you know, in training a British lab in their behavior versus an an American lab in their behavior, and and like what are some of the the I guess the hurdles, like you know, those are some of the things that I think about as well. What what you what you got for me? Sure. So I would say, you know. For as many dogs that fit the mold of a British lab, mm-hmm. there's just as many that are British, you know, UK bred dogs that if you looked at them and looked at their behavior, you would swear up and down they were an American dog. <laughs> yeah. So. I got one that's the opposite many, of it. <laughs> there, yeah, there's just as many exceptions to the rule as there are dogs that fit the mold perfectly. Right. Um, but just as a kind of painting with a broad brush, I would say things that I can almost always expect out of a UK dog, and I say almost always because it's not always the case, is they're usually going to be quite a bit softer to correction. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't have as much, you know, what we would refer to as bottom. Mm-hmm. Um can't really lean on them. Uh, I have a little male uh, right now that's actually one of my personal dogs that a couple months ago I was doing some group work with him and several other of my dogs, one of which was uh, my my first dog who's an American male. And I'm pretty sure that you could beat him over the head with a two-by-four. <laughs> and he would think nothing of it. And as soon as the beating, you know, commenced, he would be – he'd be ready to run or another retreat. Right. Uh, right. <laughs> and my little British male attempted to break on a mark and I gave him a very firm no prefaced by his name and told him to place again. He would not look at me for the rest of the training session <laughs> because I hurt his feelings. Right. Right. So things, you know, things that I typically expect out of, an, of a UK bred dog is they're going to typically be quite a bit softer. Um, one of the things that I usually see is they're a lot quieter in the kennel um, just because that's something that they breed for in the UK. They do not want a dog that makes a lick of noise. Right. If, if your dog makes any noise while on the line at a test, they're immediately out. Mm-hmm. Um they're typically a little bit easier to train to be steady um, just because, again, that's something they look for. If your dog takes even a half a step while on the line, that's it. They're out. Pick up your dog, put it on the truck. Wow. Um, That's right. So you see a lot of things like that as far as, you know, just kind of idiosyncrasies that you would expect out of a UK dog. But I also, uh, my little female that's a UK bred dog, she defies just as many stereotypes that she fits as well. So at the end of the day, a lab 
is a lab is a lab. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I've had American dogs. I've got an American dog right now that's that's softer than half of the UK dogs that I've ever trained. Um, I mean, mm-hmm. you say you say her name even halfway firm, and she's melting to the ground. Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry for whatever I've done. Right. That's right. made mad. <laughs> um, yeah. At the end of the day, it really comes down to more of the litter of, you know, what do the parents look like? And that's kind of what you can typically expect out of the dog and less of where they came from. Right. Um, You know, you will definitely see a little bit more of, you know, is the dog quiet in the kennel? Is the dog a little bit easier to train to be steady? Um, Are they a little bit more intuitive as far as I'm going to, you know, I want to see what my handler wants from me. I see a little bit more of that out of the UK dogs than I do the American dogs. Um, with the American dogs, I definitely see a lot more of, I want to go, 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 go. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's why I think, you know, for a lot of very highly bred American dogs, I think they fit a force program a lot better mm-hmm. because with force, you can give that, that giant motor and a little body, a lot of direction. Right. Um, but I, you know, I think, like I said, for as many exceptions to the rule as there are, there's just as many that fit the mold. Um, so it, it comes down a lot more to just the dog itself. I, 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 I had a litter of seven puppies that I trained and started dogs and turned around and sold them. And, you you probably could have put two or three of those dogs into if you'd have told somebody that they were British dogs, they'd have believed you all day long. And the other, you know, four or five were a hundred percent, no doubt, <laughs> full blooded Americans of you know hard charging. What can I mess up, and how fast can I mess it up? Right. <laughs> all right, guys. So I wanted to take a little bit of a break and talk about Yukonuba premium performance dog food, the 3020 blend. Um, I'm gonna take a note out of Jennifer Wapinski's article that I mentioned a little bit earlier before. And, you know, just say that, as she said, not all nutrients are created equal. Um, Some of the things that I was really impressed with um, as far as Yukonuba went, that they spoke a lot about was omega-3 and omega-6. Um, and, you know, Jennifer also highlights digestibility and bioavailability of all of these things, you know, these nutrients that go into your dog food. Not only, uh, you know, what the dog is eating and, and, and pooping out, but how is it, you know, distributing throughout the body? You know, what's being made available for the dog to utilize. You know, again, consider these dogs are athletes. Well, personal story, um, my little pup Vegas, I was feeding him all the time, but he was basically eating up a whole bunch of the old food that I was using, and it was going in and coming out, but the dog was not processing the food, okay? We're talking about bioavailability um, and digestibility. So, I want to say that when I made the switch to Yukonuba, um, my dog just looked phenomenal. I mean, you can literally tell the difference, um, not just in the way the dog was holding the food and the way the dog was digesting the food, but also the amount of food that I have to feed him. I was feeding him, you know, probably two times as much of the food that I had that I was using before 
um, and he wasn't doing anything with it. So with that, you know, I want want you guys to know that you know quality dog food matters. You know, and and what you put in is always, always, always what you're going to uh, what you're gonna get out. And I think I can definitely speak to, uh, you know, the success that I've had with this particular feed. So I want to say thank you to You Can Do the Sporting Dog. Um, guys, go pick up the premium performance dog food. The 3020 blend is what I'm using. So I say all that to say when you are out in the field, you need to prepare and determine how your dog is going to perform and with a well-balanced diet of fat and protein to support peak conditioning, uh, the Yukonuba Premium Performance Dog Food enhances the strength, energy, and endurance. So remember, guys, and I definitely stick to this. I said it in the last episode. When the pavement ends and the truck doors finally swing open, you and your dogs are ready for anything, and I stand by that. All right, guys, back to the episode. <laughs> okay. Okay. Now, you, you know, with these dogs, no matter the drive or anything, are you... Are you mostly hunt testing? Are you mostly field trialing? Are you field trialing at all? Are you, are you, you know, what's your hunt season like, man? Like, because you've got a lot on your plate, dude. So I would say the vast majority of my customer base is just gun dog work. Okay. The, the vast majority. Um, I, I have a pretty even, even distribution of, I've got a couple dogs that are just, just, you know, basic obedience dogs with a little bit of retrieving work. Um, I have a couple different, I have three dogs right now that are dogs that are guides, mm-hmm. uh, or that are owned by guides. I should say they're not, they're not guides themselves and not service dogs. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> that are owned by guides. So, you know, dogs that see somewhere between 90 to 120 days, you know, a year in the field. Right. Um, and I have some dogs that are, you know, owned by guys that they maybe hunt once a month. Um, I've got, I'm got two dogs right now that, that were prepping for hunt tests, uh, out of 14 customer dogs. Um, every, pretty much everything else is just gun dog work. Um, whether it's gun dogs for guides, uh, or gun dogs for, you know, just your guy who likes to go out and Mm -hmm. he shoots, you know, a couple mallards or a couple pheasants and, you know, he needs his dog to pick it up and then the dog is a companion for the rest of the time they go to work with him or whatever. Um, I spend, you know, I would say a good majority of my time training just gun dogs, though. Right. We do a little bit of hunt test stuff. Um, I, I I hunt test a couple of my personal dogs. Um, I do not do any field trial stuff right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's definitely something that's an interest to me. I would like to learn more more about it and, you know, kind of potentially get into it. But it definitely takes, at least for Field trials with a, a Labrador definitely takes a very specific dog right. to to fit that mold. Right. Um, 
and, and then you know a specific train that goes with that mole. Mm-hmm. Um, but for the most part, you know, short answer, I would say eighty-five percent of my client dogs and the work that I do is just gun dog work. Right. Right. Well, you know, I like that. You know that you you're doing that because then maybe this is just me being too hyper analytical or or whatever, but especially in in social media just out there out and about you see so many of these guys that are your your pro you know uh test or trial dog trainer you know what i'm saying but you know i don't i, I at least feel like i don't hear enough about you know Joe Schmo that just wants a damn good hunting dog and you know, wants a dog that can, you know, I guess participate in a hunt and be mannerable, but maybe isn't necessarily looking to go to a test. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, and I feel like the direction of where our generation is going, I feel like a large percentage of us, you know, have to grapple with that, you know? Like, what do I really want out of this dog? I know I had to when I got into it. Absolutely. So, you know, the way I look at it is definitely could you take a dog that that is, you know, let's say so the, the game that I mainly play as far as hunt test stuff goes is, is the HRC game, the mm-hmm. UK United Kennel Club um, hunt test. So, you know, the high the highest title that you could get in that would be a grand hunting retriever champion. Right. So. Could you take a grand dog and make them a gun dog? Absolutely, without a doubt, no reason that dog is going to perform at an, at a very high level in the field. Right. Uh, you know what a lot of you know what we'll call Joe Schmo guys would call a robot dog because right. the dog's going to stop on a whistle on a dime and take a beautiful cast and they're going to be steady as a rock and everything like that. Um, you know, they're going to be able to mark a, tr- a really nice triple in honor and everything like that. Um, but I, I think there's a lot of things that if you've got a dog that hunts, let's say 60 to 90 days a year, that there's a lot of things that that dog picks up in the field that do not benefit you in a hunt test game <laughs> mm-hmm. at all. Yep. Uh, that's something that I've, I've been, you know, we're kind of, we just kind of come over the hump now with one of my, with my little uh, UK bred female Piper. We, we've just kind of come over that hump of, you know, she hunted with me um, for December and January. I, when I was in Oklahoma, I guide for goose reapers mm-hmm. and she was the main dog that I would pull off the trailer every day. Right. Because she just, she just kind of, she's kind of fell into the role naturally. She picked everything up naturally. She loves to retrieve birds. She runs pretty solid blinds, especially for how young she was. Um, but there's a lot of things that I've had to go back and untrain from hunting season to get her, ready for a hunt test right um you know so the dogs that i have that are just guide dogs that they're never going to see a hunt test they're never going to you know never going to hear the phrase dog to the line there's a lot of things that i i work with on those dogs 
that I would never work with on a hunt test dog and right. vice versa. Right. Which, you know, we could get into a long debate about why a hunt test doesn't actually fit a hunting dog so much anymore. Um, well, I I do want to get into that debate. I think that was kind of a piece of one of my questions. Why do you think that? So, you know, you kind of look at, um, <coughs> like I said before, a dog that's, you know, even a, you know, and I'll speak to just what I know, which is the UKC side of things. Mm-hmm. Um, a dog that's an HRCH dog, a hunting retriever champion, right. which is about the, you know, one of the, the second highest title that you could, you could achieve in, in the UKC realm of things. Um, could you take a dog? like that and put them into a hunting environment and they're going to succeed. Absolutely. No doubt. Is that, you know, and, and potentially out succeed some of, you know, your general gun dogs. Right. But (laughs) there's a lot of little things like it. For example, if, if I'm running a hunt and I tell my dog, go back or go fetch or whatever your, your command is for your, your retriever. Maybe your most average guys, they're not sending that dog on a line, right? They're telling that dog, go find something and bring it back. And when you get back, go find something else. Right. I don't care how you do it. Just do it. Just find it. Right. So, and that, that kind of behavior doesn't fit into a hunt test at all Mm -hmm. because what they want to see out of a hunt test dog is I'm going to take a perfect line to mark number one. I'm going to take a perfect line to mark number two. I'm going to take a perfect line to mark number three. And then I'm going to take a, you know, a perfect line with maybe one or two whistle stops and casts to the blind. Mm-hmm. Whereas with a, with a gun dog, maybe halfway to a blind, you stumble across a wounded mallard and I'm not going to know you off of that wounded mallard. You're just going to pick it up and bring it back to me, and then we'll go ahead and run this blind right. that I had initially sent you on. Right. Um, there's a lot of things that crop up in the field that if the dog is obeying hunt test standards, it's not necessarily a bad thing, but you know, I, I spend probably 50 days as a guide a year. Mm-hmm. Um that, you know, maybe things, if the dog was obeying a hunt test standard, it's not a bad thing, but it's impeding the efficiency of the retrieve. Right. Thank you. Jesus so, Christ. I've, I've said that numerous times to people and gotten into plenty of arguments out and about. I, I appreciate you saying that, but go ahead. <laughs> so, you know, I, I and like I said, you know, I, I can, there's no doubt, especially as a retriever guy, mm-hmm. uh, a dog that can take a line for 100 yards, you know, like a master level dog in the AKC, a dog that can take a line for 100, 150 yards, stop on a whistle, take an absolutely perfect cast, and then one whistle, 150-yard blind, 175-yard blind. That's, in, that's beautiful dog work. Right. And there's no doubt I have a massive level of appreciation for that. Right. But in the field, especially as a guide, I'm more concerned with how fast can you get as many birds back to me as possible. Right. And I don't really care what it looks like. And, you know, there may be some guys that are going to say, well, that's kind of ignorant of you as a dog trainer or. I don't think it's ignorant at all. I think it's efficient. um, 
but at, at the end of the day, the dog is there to help me pick up the birds. Right. So the gross task at hand is how fast can I get the birds back to me with this dog? Mm-hmm. 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 I don't, I, I really love the way that you articulated that, man. Um, you know, for me, that was, that was definitely a big dilemma um, when I first got my lab, right? So I got them, um, you know, you talk to a lot of trainers here, you talk to a lot of trainers there, and you want to get as much information as you possibly can. And you go to training days, and I'm I'm always appreciative of of going to these training days and, and, and being able to communicate with folks. But I see so many folks that are only hunt testing and not hunting. You see what I'm saying? Absolutely. You know what I'm saying? And, and so I'm seeing their dog do certain things, and I'm... You know, by this point in time, I've been on a number of duck hunts and, and, and by myself most of the time, um, you know, or with a buddy or with a partner. And certain things just don't necessarily apply in a hunt. They just don't. You know, I, I it, it's great to have that robotic type dog. But again, as far as the you, you said it earlier, the efficiency of the hunt. Get it and bring it back. I don't care how you do it, but just do it. You know, and I've I've even had my own mental battles like, you know, I'll be out training the dog, you know, training my dog, and you know, I'll send them on a retrieve or send them on a marker or something like that. Um, you know, and he kind of goes and his he he functions a little bit more independently of me. But the end the end result is the dog brought you know, brought, he, he got the task accomplished, you know, formally that would not win you a hunt test. (laughs) You're not going to pass that, but you know, I can say I love hunting over my dog. Absolutely. You know, well, and, and the the way I look at it too is, and you know, we can kind of circle back to this kind of, uh, this kind of, translates to one of the reasons I've, I've kind of leaned more towards um, not only UK training methods, but UK bred Labradors mm-hmm. a, as an avid, you know, hunter is what they test for over there in the field is how did the dog perform on a normal shoot? Right. Right. And so what they look for is, is the dog steady? Yes. Okay. So the dog's steady. So can they handle well? Mm-hmm. And when they say handle, can you get them to the area of the fall and then let the dog do what the dog was bred to do? Exactly. Which is put their nose to the ground and go to work. Right. With an American hunt test, really what they're looking for is did the dog take a nice straight line and get to a very small area and then pull a bird out of the area. Right. Yes. And it was under super control the whole time. Right. If you watch most of the UK dogs or or the, you know, the UK field trials, there's a lot of things that they're evaluating for 
that would not really apply at all in an American hunt test. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's fine. You know, the dog is the product of the game that it's playing. So, you know, I I like a dog that uh, I like the idea, I guess I should say, of how did the dog perform on a normal day's shoot? Not how did the dog perform against this standard? Okay. 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 Um, Damn, I'm, I'm look. I'm writing down notes. The dog is a product of the game is playing. Um, I really like that man, and you know I want to kind of keep that in my own repertoire because, again, you know, for us folks, man, you know, we're it's it's always great to see different dogs do different things, but I think it's important. Again, going back to you know British methods, that was much like you why I wanted to do it. You know, my, my biggest concern, my, my biggest, um, interest, I guess, with both of my dogs, my pointer and my lab is getting on wild birds and the nature of that type of hunting, you know, is, is way different than, than an orchestrated test, you know? Um, absolutely. It's, it's, to be truthful, it's not even close. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Especially as far as an American test goes versus, you know, a, a, a wild hunting scenario. Right. Um, and it is. It's not. It's really not even close. Right. And like I said, could you take a dog that's very highly titled in, you know, in a hunt test, you know, ring and put it into a field and it succeed? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But there's probably going to be some hurdles to overcome. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and I've seen that before. Now, have I seen dogs that are fabulous hunt test dogs and also fabulous field dogs? Absolutely. But they're few and far between. And typically the handler is also the trainer and they know what kind of standard they have to uphold to keep the dog doing both. Right. Well, right, right. I mean, you 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 hit the nail on the head. Now, you know. Let me uh, let's transition, man, because we getting we getting real deep, you know, into the whole (laughs) the whole of differentiating the test dog and trial dog, you know. But we never got into talking about Gypsum Creek, man. Give me some history on that. Let's let's get off the, the the super smart people stuff and let's get into you. And the the who, what, where, wins, and why of Gypsum Creek Retrievers. You know, why did you even name it that? And and when did you decide, I'm going to start my own, you know, training operation? Sure. So, I'll start with the name. Uh, It was super simple and uh, kind of just a – I was stuck on what I should name the kennel. I had, like – or 15 different names that I was rolling around in my head and I was trying to work with what's going to be easily remembered but also marketable and also recognizable Um, so I tried to kind of look at other people who were successful in that realm and things like that Um, the the creek that runs to the south of my house is Gypsum Creek Okay, and so I just figured I'm a Labrador guy. 
Retrievers are, are kind of my, my game and my field. So Jefferson Creek Retrievers was fitting because I feel like this kind this area of Kansas is where I had landed um, and where I felt like I was going to stay, you know, until further notice. Right, right. Okay. Um, so as far as kind of getting, you know, getting started in the dog training world, um, like, like I said earlier, I trained my first retriever uh, myself, um, and we had pretty good success in the field. I, I also guide hunts in the winter when I'm not training dogs. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I had some people that, that watched my dog work and, and were pleased with how he worked and, you know, kind of felt in the back of my mind that I had something here. Yeah. Um, so a couple of years have been going on almost three years ago now. Mm-hmm. I had an opportunity presented to myself. Uh, there was a local guy who was having a litter of puppies that were out of two really nice gun dogs. Um, and I had seen both of the dogs work and, you know, they, they came from really good pedigrees. The, the dam came out of a lot of master hunters, master national retrievers, really a nice pedigree. The, the sire came out of, um, some really nice, uh, upland Labradors, um, and, he asked me if I was possibly interested in, you know, kind of working out a deal where I trained a bunch of the dogs and sold them as started dogs um, and kind of, you know, worked with him on the deal. Okay. And so I was kind of looking for a foot in the door to get out of the nine to five, mm-hmm. so to say. And I felt like that was kind of my foot in the door. I knew that I, uh, you know, Going way back, uh, my initial plans for life or whatever you want to call it, ever since I was a kid, was to be a veterinarian because I've always loved animals. Mm -hmm. Uh, But after going through college and working at a vet for, you know, a total of about probably would have been two and a half years and seeing the day to day, I realized that kind of wasn't really for me. Okay, Um, it, It was a lot less. Uh, I guess it was a lot more underwhelming than I had actually anticipated. Really? So, so I, I knew I wanted to do something with animals, but I didn't know what it was. And I, I knew I really enjoyed training dogs. It never seemed like work to me. So when that opportunity was presented to me, I, I kind of just jumped at it, you know, head first. And so I trained seven Labradors and I sold six of them as started dogs. And that would have been about, let's see, it had been going on about two and a half years ago. Uh, I kept one back because I felt like he was really something special and trained him as a finished dog. He'll actually go home, uh, this July okay. to Ontario. He's going to go live with an out, uh, he'll live out the rest of his life with an outfitter. Nice. Uh, up there as a pickup dog for him. So I, I kind of, you know, a, after I trained those dogs and the, the, the tough goodbye with them, I realized whelping and training dogs was not what I, what I wanted to do because it was just, it, it was a very bittersweet goodbye to watch, you know, these, these six puppies that I've known since they were, you know, before they had their eyes open to the point they're completing double retrieves. Right. Um, 
go away with somebody else was a little too bittersweet for me. So, but I enjoyed the whole process of, of training them. So I, you know, I, I, I kind of figured, well, this is what I, I would like to do. I really enjoy it. I, it doesn't feel like work 90% of the time. Yeah. And, and, you know, I always wanted to do some with animals. It felt like dogs were kind of where I leaned. Um, and so, between recommendations that I had off of uh, people that had bought started puppies from me, and uh, people who had either hunt, who had hunted with me with my dogs, um, I had enough clientele to kind of make the proverbial jump from a nine to five to full time training. Okay, and that was just last year in March. Congratulations, so, Chief. Thanks, man. Thanks. I feel I feel very fortunate that that this is what I get to do from day to day, and this is you know kind of my my job. Yeah. Seven days a week. It doesn't really feel like a job most of the time. Mm-hmm. So, you know, between those two things, that that was uh, kind of where I that's how I kind of landed here, so to say. Nice, nice, nice. Okay. That 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 makes sense, man. And it, you know, it can be done, man. Like I think there are you know lots of lots of us guys out there that are are breaking the traditional sense of getting into dog training, if that makes sense, right? Like absolutely, absolutely. You know, whether it be. You know, like you saying, all right, I've got enough clients. I want to go ahead and make this jump. You know, myself, I wouldn't call myself a professional trainer or anybody's trainer, but I've gotten into the podcast thing and found a way to, you know, leave my mark and kind of develop my own little niche in this whole thing um, and hopefully disseminate information, you know, out to the masses, you know, from great guys like yourself. I think there's an unconventional way of going about getting into dogs because we've got the access and, and the technology and the resources and honestly the guts to step out on our own. You know what I'm saying? It, it, it takes a lot to say this is what I'm going to do and for somebody to trust that you're going to give them the finished product that they're asking. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I've, I've definitely seen that, you know, not only with uh, it's, it's kind of uh, I don't know if ironic is the word for it or not, but I, I've seen, you know, I wouldn't say even a fair amount, but a little bit of opposition from other whether it's trainers or other people that are just, you know, potential clients mm-hmm. of the fact that I don't lean towards a traditional force fetch program. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, just because it's, it's the irony of it is, is it's so old school and that, you know, people in the UK have been training dogs like this for hundreds of years, hundreds of years yeah. with with great success in the field. Right. And that's the thing that I always try to echo is yep. for the vast majority of the dogs that I'm training, I'm not trying to train a hunt test dog. I'm not trying to train, especially not trying to train a field trial dog. Right. I'm trying to train a dog that when you take them out, whether it's pheasant hunting, quail hunting, duck hunting, goose hunting, they're going to be able to perform and make you pleased with the end result. Right. And 
you know, it's it's funny because I definitely ran into some opposition of that of well, how can you know how can you train a dog mm-hmm. without a collar? Yeah, and you know it can definitely be done. It's, it's, it it absolutely can it be takes done. More time. Uh, you know what, man? Like now that you said that, I am a firm believer. At least with my lab, I'm not gonna throw a collar on that dog. I I and, and the crazy thing is, I started off with Wild Rose which doesn't require a collar mm-hmm. and messed around and, and, and started hanging around people that were using a collar. So of course I thought, you know, early, early, early in that maybe that's what I need to do, man. I messed around and, and was doing more harm than good. I saw that collar so quick. And, and, and it be, because it was not helping my dog, and I went back to the methods, and I've had a chance to meet Mike Stewart and see him, you know, operate his dogs and things like that. I didn't need it. So the the, the reliance on the collar, I don't know if that's a, a consumer culture thing, you know, or if, if somebody wrote some rule book that says that this is how it has to be done. But you bring up a very good point. People have been training dogs for hundreds of years long before a collar came out. And that's not just with retrievers. That's with pointers, too. Absolutely. You know what I'm saying? So why does... Like, what is it about this oppositional, almost recreational outrage about using something that works, a technique that that doesn't require a collar? What What is it with that, man? I would, I would definitely argue to say that it's more consumer related than it is anything else for the most part. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'd say there's also trainers that are on the side of misunderstanding Mm -hmm. the same way that I was on the misunderstanding side of the force fetch thing. When I very first started training my first dog. Agree. And uh, no doubt did I, the main reason I moved more towards a non-collar method was just because I wanted to be able to say, okay, my dog wasn't force-fetched, but he's still able to perform the gross task at hand. Right, right. And I think there's definitely guys that are on the side of the force, you know, on the force-fetch side of the fence that simply don't understand just because they haven't come across it yet. And they, they don't, they haven't, you know, seeing a trainer train without a collar or seeing the progress of, you know, a, a puppy to a finished dog without a collar or without force. Right. And so it's just a misunderstanding more than anything. Right. But I think a, a lot of it is guys who all they've ever known is, well, if I've got a high strung dog, we're going to put him on the force fetch table and then we're going to put a collar on him and we're going to collar condition him. And that's the way that we're going to get this dog under control. Right. And it's it's just more of a, a misunderstanding and a, you know, a inability to look at both sides of the ball, if right. you will. Right. And, and that's why earlier, you know, I wanted, I'm, I'm glad you addressed both sides of the ball and I did want to bring up the, like I said, the idea of the middle ground dog, um, because it, it, there is no right or wrong way to train. 
outside of a you know as long as it's not abuse you see what i'm saying like we're not out here to abuse dogs but you need to understand the character of the dog and and, and understand what it is that you're working with um but you know it, it just really really baffled me man like how so like it was almost like it's a rule book or you know or or something like that and I don't know. I'm I'm just glad to see that, you know, this particular generation is is willing, and they and and not even just in our generation. There are a few older folks too, but there are people that are out there willing to say that no, the the you know the rule book can be amended. You know, if there ever was one, you know there there's not one straight path to it. You know. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. And, and that's something that for a while I really read. <laughs> there you go. The dog, there's, a, there's a rabbit in the yard and the dogs are not happy. Oh my God. You just got into my next and one of my fewer last questions, but that's perfect timing. <laughs> <laughs> let me, let, let me, let me catch you while that rabbit is still in the yard. Um, are you now? I work my dog on both fur and feather, right? That's now my pointer. No, I don't do that. But my lab, much like in the UK, that dog is expected to retrieve a pheasant, a grouse, a rabbit, or or a hare. I guess if they call it that. Are you working um, your labs on both types of game or or strictly feather? Man, if if I'm totally honest it's really pretty much just feathered animals okay and if i'm really honest for the most part it's just waterfowl okay and and that's just for my dogs um as far as my hunting uh adventures if you want to call it that and my clientele basis most everybody that i'm surrounded with is i would say probably 90 percent waterfowl guys Um, I I was, I was actually raised an upland hunter, um, and fell in love with waterfowling thanks to a buddy of mine that introduced me to duck hunting on public land when I was 16 years old. Um, and so I kind of fell in love with the, the waterfowl side of things and just dove headlong into that. Um, I, I have a lot of respect for the guys that have labs that can go from the duck blind to the pheasant field mm-hmm. to you know the uh you know chasing hares yep. and yep. things of that nature i um i i'm that guy man like i especially here in georgia now mind you we're hunting a different landscape okay so you know no in georgia you know in, in georgia you'll catch the occasional mallard and, and things like that here and there but um, it, you know, in the early season, if I want good work, and especially it works for good steadiness work, I'll go squirrel hunt with my dog, right? Like, you know, we've got to sit there and just and wait, pop a squirrel, and, and and as soon as he falls, and it took for me to lose a squirrel after a decision to not bring my dog with me that I said I would never hunt game without my lab again, right? Mm-hmm. Um. The bad boy fell in a bush and I never saw him again. Um, I shot him and everything. Now and 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 with rabbits down in Alabama, 
we're out quail hunting and I had an opportunity to take a rabbit, shot him, you know, and it was definitely, you know, a very blind retrieve, if you want to call it that. And sent the dog into the bush and I wasn't even sure if I even hit the bad boy. And, I, you know, 10 seconds later, <laughs> that, that little lab got a, got a, got a bunny in his mouth. <laughs> Here comes Fluffy with with, with Fluffy. Right, exactly. (laughs) With with good old Peter Cottontail. So, you know, I'm always, you know, interested in in what folks are using their dogs for. I I do believe labs are truly versatile dogs. And, um, you know, and I I have a different set of standards, like I said, for my pointer. My pointer, I don't want, and, and I think a dog is a dog is a dog, much like you said, a lab is a lab is a lab. I think you can get a dog to, to train to retrieve damn near anything um, if you do it right. But my pointer, I don't want him on anything else other than feathered game and not even waterfowl, just upland. Sure. But with my lab, you know, I grew up squirrel hunting. I, you know, I grew up shooting rabbits. I still want to do that. And that's where my versatile thing comes in. So I, I had to catch you on that one, man. Since you said that rabbit was coming, that rabbit popped up in your yard. The dogs got to holler. I I, I love it. <laughs> and, and you know, I I think speaking to uh, speaking to labs being versatile, I, I will say there there's times in the year where I, I'm fortunate enough that I can go, you know, take a little bit of time off from guiding and take a little bit of time off from dog training and go hunt upland with my buddies. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's the first real hunting that I got involved in was actually pheasant hunting in Kansas. Uh, I had a I had an uncle that lived in Wichita while I was growing up in Dallas, and he would have us up every year, and we'd go pheasant hunting with him. Nice. And so, you know, when I have time off – I, I get to go pheasant hunt with my buddies and with really tough public land birds, mm-hmm. sometimes we were actually better off with leaving the pointers at the truck and taking flushing dogs, dogs that had been, you know, labs that had been exposed to upland. Yep. And, and you know, because with our public land roosters, they, they get pretty wise and they'll just run. Mm-hmm. Oh. so... I know, I know, I know those roosters uh, very well, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> and so a pointer, you know, as great as they are, sometimes a flushing dog, like a you know spaniel or a labrador, is is more suited for the job. Mm-hmm. And so I, I've had the pleasure of having my labs on a couple of months of of really just following labs that knew what they were doing mm-hmm. in a, in the flushing game, um, but definitely. Uh, uh, you know, I think that there's definitely, uh, as far as versatility, uh, I think it's it's hard to beat a Labrador a lot of mm-hmm. times. I agree. I agree. I actually, I'm not going to run my pointer on pheasants, man. I'm not. I, I, I do not want a creeping pointer. Um, I just don't. And no. I, I, I know a lab will put it up in the air, you know, just as well as a spaniel will. So, you know, I'm, I'm with you. And, and, and it is smarter a lot of the times to do that. So now, and, and this is my last one for you. Um, and I got one last listener question, um, kind of off the mark, but I, you know, just something else I think about. 
But, you know, my personal question, and I'm going to switch my cubby confession for you. What do you okay. what do you think is missing in the retriever world of, of, of hunting and training? Like, is it something that we can improve on? Is it something that isn't talked about or discussed? What's missing, man? Man. <laughs> I, would, <laughs> I would say, and this is just, Again, this is my opinion. It's, it's like a butthole. Everybody has one. Right. <laughs> but uh, I, I would say community. Okay. I, I think there's I think there's a missed opportunity between guys that are diehard field trial guys, diehard hunt test guys, and guys that are diehard gun dog guys. Right. And I think there's a missed line of communication between those two groups of people. Uh, at the end of the day, all we really want is a good dog. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, all we really want is good dog work, whether it's watching a dog run a 400-yard mark or watching a dog from 40 yards away, they dive into – hundred yards of cattails and they're expected to hunt up a wounded mallard. Mm-hmm. And, and I think there's a lot to be learned from each side. There's certainly, um, the guy that I mentioned earlier on, Scott Bodemer with black Bradley retrievers. Mm-hmm. He, he's a guy that is really, he plays, you know, he does a lot of hunt test games. He does a fair amount of field trial stuff. Um, and trains a lot of gun dogs too. He's a guy that's really been a, a good mentor to me, but also been a, a kind of a good um, sounding board that just because I don't force fetch all my dogs doesn't mean I'm going the wrong way. Right. I'm just going a different way about it. Right. Um, there's always something to be learned from somebody. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, I try to take that, that, mentality into every conversation interaction with anybody that I meet, but especially with a retriever, you know, trainer or, Mm -hmm. you know, even pointer trainer, Mm -hmm. but, you know, speaking just to the retriever world, you know, there's certainly a ton of things that I could learn from somebody who plays only the field trial game. Mm -hmm. And, you know, potentially there's something they can learn from me, whether it's, you know, how I train, you know, angle backs or, or, or whatever. I don't, you know, that's just an example. Right. No, uh, it's valid. Very valid. Yeah. I, I would say community is definitely something that I, I think is, is starting to develop, but is also still missing in the retriever community. And I, I'm not involved in the pointer community enough to know whether or not that's the case there too. Right. But, you know, it, it seems like a lot of people are set in the ways of this is the way that I do it and it's the only way to do it. And I think that's a dangerous assumption to make no matter what you're doing. Right. 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 Man, I think you might have put that so damn eloquently. We need to write a book about that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know about that. <laughs> no, I, I really, Evan, I really appreciate you know, your outlook, man, and it, it just speaks to, 
your knowledge base and, and, and the way that you articulate your training thoughts and stuff like that, it, it really does art, it speak to the level of care and quality that you that you give to your dogs. I mean, it's one thing to, to see something on social media. I've, I've been aware of your profile for a while, never thought in a day in my life that I would end up you know, watching Churchill Downs and Serengeti Empress, you know, win a race and we be talking and, you know, might have a cigar or something like that. And next thing you know, I'm talking to a gentleman that aligns very much so with my ideals and, and, and a lot of folks' ideals on this podcast. Um, and that's that sense of community that I hope with this podcast that you know, I can bring and I, and I hope that your words are received by that community. Matter of fact, not even hope. I know that they'll be. Um, but it is our age. We're, we're, we're the younger guys in this thing. We've got to carry that torch. You know, um, we've really got to be cognizant of not prescribing a, a, a book or a method and, and saying that there's only one way. You know, that, absolutely. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like the, the that, path is so open, man. That that's something that I, I've always tried to, uh, I guess, strive for. You know, before before I was really heavy into the retriever game, the the main thing that I did of the just work a nine to five is is I worked uh, as a guide, a waterfowl guide. And the one thing that I always felt was it was there was always these hard and fast lines of, well, if you hunt this way, then you're this type of person. And if you hunt that way, you're that type of person. And the one thing that I always aimed to do was break down that that barrier and break down that mold of, OK, well, just because we do this doesn't mean that I'm that type of person. Right. And I think that's so important, you know, even in the dog game and, and just in life of just because somebody doesn't does something different than you doesn't mean that they're doing it wrong. Right. And just because you do it different than them doesn't mean that you're doing it right. Right. There's there's always something to be learned from somebody when you're going into you know meeting a new person, whether it's a dog trainer or a business person or, or whatever. Right. Right. I, I think that's spot on, man. But, you know, there's so much diversity in this industry, you know, yeah, there's so much, man. Like I would I would be curious to know how you know, this is a random one, but, you know, I'm going to hold two more seconds of your time. I would be curious to know how a retriever training trainer in New Zealand, for example, that's studying and, and, you know, analyzing, you know, UK methods, I would be curious to know how they apply that to their situation, you know, their, their hunting terrain and things like that. And like you said, there's something to learn from somebody like that. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Well, Evan, I, I, I can't thank you enough, Chief, you know, is there any way that, you know, or it, not any way, anything you want to leave with the listeners and, and, and tell folks how to get a hold of you, you know, where to find you? Um, and, and I want to send some traffic your way, Chief. 
I, hey man, I appreciate that. Absolutely. Uh, they can find find us on Instagram, just at Gypsum Creek Retrievers. Uh, same thing on Facebook at Gypsum Creek Retrievers. Um, if they've got Snapchat, I, I post a fair amount of dog stuff on my Snapchat too, and that's just Evan Oswald five five on Snapchat. Um, if I always want to urge anybody if they have any questions at all regarding dog training or you know guiding or whatever, because um, that's what I do with the other three months of my year. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't don't hesitate to send me a DM or, or a text or whatever. I'm always happy to, to uh, BS dogs and dog training and, and waterfowl hunting. Yeah, man. Yeah, man. Well, you did enough of it with me at Churchill Downs, so I can speak to it. We, we It was addicting talking dogs with you, man. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, ladies and gentlemen, you know, you heard it best from Evan Oswald of Gypsum Creek Retrievers. That is another episode of the Gundog Notebook down. Um, I, I, I plan on getting this episode out into the community as soon as possible, Evan. So, you know, guys, catch me next week on another episode. And I'm looking forward to uh, continuing this relationship, Evan. Yeah, me too, man. I've, I've really enjoyed it so far. All right, man. Well, hang on for me one second. We can wrap this on up. All right, guys, that is the end of another great episode of the Gundog Notebook Podcast. As we get on up out of here, I just want to again say thank you to all my sponsors and affiliates, Line Country Supply, Dakota 283 Kennels, Northwoods Collective Folks, Project Upland, AJ, Nick Larson, uh, Chet, Wilson Singh, Edgar Castillo, Jennifer Wapinski, because I definitely used your uh, article in this particular episode, and I thank you, ma'am. You know, Orvis, you know, anybody that I'm affiliated with, anybody that is sponsoring me, you can do the sporting dog for show. All right. Um, I just really, 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 really <laughs> can't say thank you enough to you, Canuba, because um, they made my dog look awesome. So, with that being said, guys, that is another episode down. It's in the books, down in history. Uh, I guess the the internet timeline of all things great. Um, it's Evan Oswald, guys. Give him a call. And until next time, I got another episode coming for y'all next. Man, man, man. Do I want to tell y'all what's coming up next? Maybe I will. Maybe I won't. Maybe I will. Nah, I'm not going to say I like the surprise. Anyway, there's another really good one coming up. Um, I hope y'all enjoyed it, guys. Um, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. And guys, go get yourself a Gundog Notebook number two from thegundognotebook.com. All right, I'm going to stop bugging y'all. Catch y'all next week.